As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lady Justice is a true crime podcast, therefore deals with incidents of violence, disturbing imagery and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. The Lady Justice podcast wishes to offer their deepest condolences to the victims' families and wishes to offer thanks to those that work in emergency services. my lovelies and welcome to yet another episode of Lady Justice, a true crime podcast. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases from both the past and the present. My name is Chantelle and I'm your friendly true crime junkie with slight caffeine addiction issues. I hope this episode finds you all feeling very well and that you're having a great week. As usual, before I get into this episode, I do just want to ask you guys a massive favour. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating and leaving a review where you can. And because sharing is caring, I want you to tell everyone you know. Share it on social media and get the word out. It really does make the world of difference. If you'd like to contact me about anything then please feel free to do so via social media or by my email, which you'll find in the show notes. We are now into the last of our full-length episodes of Teesside Terrors, and there is one final bite-sized bonus that will be released on the last day of August. I am so overwhelmed with the great response that I've had from everybody so far, especially so as many of the cases, such as Timothy Din, Eric Yale, Isabel and Brian Adams are not cases that are renowned nationally. 
This episode does contain a hate crime against those with a disability, so this will serve as an extra trigger warning. Please practice self-care and only continue if you feel like you're able. This week, before the act of kindness, we have a promo for such a great podcast, who is now in their fourth season, True Crime Fits, hosted by the wonderfully smooth-voiced Steve. It's definitely a new favourite of mine, and it's such an immersive listen that really does keep you hooked. So please listen out a little later so you can hear why you should be listening. Now, in this week's episode, one conversation sets off a chain of events that leads to a vulnerable man being disemboweled with a bread knife. This is the case, accusation. So, without further ado, here is some of the background on the location and time frame of this case. We are heading back to 2005, a year that yet again had another general election in the UK. It saw Labour's Tony Blair win his third and final premiership. It was the year that saw the hunting ban come to force, Liverpool FC winning their fifth European Cup, and the England cricket team winning the Ashes. 2005 saw celebrity deaths of former Prime Ministers James Callaghan and Edward Heath, as well as the comedian god Ronnie Barker. We are taking a trip to Billingham, which we've actually been to before on the show, back in the second episode, The Body Under the Bathtub, which looks at the death of the mother Julie Hogg and her family's long fight for justice. Billingham sits on the north side of the River Tees, and there has been a settlement recorded on the site since Saxon times. Since 1965, the town has held an international folklore festival, and it has one of my favourite walks there, at the Billingham Beck Valley Country Park. Famous folks with connections to the area include cricketer Chris Thompson, musicians Eddie Johnson and Dustin Bruce. As always, all my sources will be listed in the show notes. At the age of 13, Gemma Swindon was a teenager who, like many on the cusp of adulthood, was a little lost. She had a small circle of friends, and it was at this age that she befriended a relatively well-known man from Billingham, Keith. She would go to his home, often accompanied by another peer of her own age. They would sit and listen to music, drink cups of tea, and Keith would let her use his flat as a place to get respite from home, because, well, teenagers don't always like the idea of home. Keith Philpott was a 31-year-old man, though, hanging out with a 13-year-old girl. It wouldn't be hard to assume that she turned up at his council flat without a friend. But please don't get me wrong. There was no suggestion of any wrongdoing. Keith was a man with learning difficulties after being born premature, acutely so, I may add. He was not known to local authorities or the adult services team, and he was well supported by his close family that lived nearby. He had mentioned his friendship with the teen Gemma to his siblings and parents, and although they were concerned that maybe he was being taken advantage of, by someone who knew he was vulnerable, they also knew, and many others were aware, 
he was not going to have any illicit dealings with the girl. He just wanted a friend. He just wanted to be independent. He just wanted to try and live his life. This friendship would continue for six years and never an accusation was made. Keith let Gemma into his spotless home as she grew into a young adult. He continued to be her friend, offering her his phone when needed and a chat when things were tough. Keith's family were concerned that even at 19, Gemma was starting to use Keith, running up his phone bills and making him buy her beer out of his small amount of money he would receive in the form of unemployment benefits. But they knew he would not try to jeopardise his friendship with the girl by pulling her up on such matters. Until there was an argument and the friendship started to fragment. In July 2004, Kevin Philpott, on the advice of his trusted family, was to make a report to the police. This wasn't to be the first time he had reported harassment to the police but it was the first time that the harassment came from the family of his long-term friend, Gemma's family, the Swindons. Previous to this, Kevin had made three reports to Cleveland Police in a six-month period. None of these reports had been classified as a hate crime due to his disability. As I have stated before, Keith was not under any local authority care, his family taking much of the duties in regards to ensuring his safety with independent living. Keith was only registered at the GP, which he visited infrequently, and he was not on the doctor's learning disability register, therefore was pretty much under the radar. These prior threats, however, proved how much the police force did think he was vulnerable, as on these occasions, when he made a statement to the police, he was told that he would have to have an appropriate adult with him. On the 12th of April 2003, Keith reported that youths that he was unable to identify were braying at his door and shouting abuse through the letterbox at him. No arrests were made. On August 30th 2003, the police attended Keith's home after a report of criminal damage where a window of the property was smashed. Keith told the police he did not see who had committed the crime. No arrests were made. On the 5th of October that year, Keith was once again seen by police, after the man was assaulted by a man known to Keith as Jeff, which left Keith with a minor eye injury. No arrests were made. Yet, in all of these incidents, statements made by Keith Philpott were to have an appropriate adult included in the room on the police officer's suggestion. Moving forward in time to July 2004, when Keith was reporting harassment by the Swindon family, the police had decided that he did not need an appropriate adult when making these claims officially. It was in regards to that now, as Gemma was an adult, Her family were concerned that her friendship was not all that it seemed, and it may have had a sexual undertone. They wished to warn the man away from the woman. These threats had scared the man and his family, who told him to make the report, and the police warned him to stay away from Gemma and her family. 
The police spoke to members of the Swindon family and cautioned them in regards to their behaviour towards Keith in the future. No arrests were made. Now, at this time, strangely, officers at Cleveland Police say they were unaware of the reasons as to why the Swindon family were threatening Mr Philpott. They said they were unaware that this had come about after Gemma had confessed to her older brother Sean that Keith had been sending inappropriate, sexually charged messages to her mobile. No evidence was to be given to this from Gemma to her brother Sean, yet, as any brother, he believed her. None of this was mentioned to the police during this July 2004 timeframe, but Gemma was warned by officers to remove herself from Keith. Unfortunately, the now 19-year-old Gemma didn't. She still had a key to the front door of the downstairs flat. She would often doss there, stay the night. And witnesses would later come forward to say that she brought female friends and boyfriends to her older friend's home. For the following eight months, things became ever more excessively strained between the friends, with Gemma using Keith's home and Keith quietly abiding her as not to receive more threats from her family. Gemma did not care for Keith when he would ask her to leave or say he wished to end their friendship. After all, she had already accused him of making unwanted sexual advances towards her once. When he did, he would receive messages such as these, which had been seen by witnesses and discovered later. You perv, we're going to break your legs. Watch your back and watch your flat. And what was that? These text messages were not reported to the police as they had happened after the report made in July 2004. March 23rd, 2005 was a special day for Keith Philpott. He'd bought a new bicycle and he beamed with pleasure at his new purchase when he passed the spa shop located behind his flat in Axbridge Court in the Highgrange area of Billingham. He was known to be good with bikes. They had been a passion of his and his twin brother Kevin. They were born in November 1968 to a close-knit family. They had four older siblings, Carol, Stephen, Michael and Christine. Due to being born premature, the twins had been diagnosed with learning difficulties when they were just infants. They were educated at specialist schools in the district. However, they did leave with a limited ability at the age of 16. Kids all knew that Keith and Kevin were very handy and great with bikes. They were popular because of this. They had no trouble and everyone liked and respected them. When Keith was 16, he arranged to stay with his elder brother Stephen, who was living in the capital. He attended college in London. This experience led him to move back to the northeast with a new will and with careful planning with his family. It was arranged that Keith would live independently, stretching out on his own. He was accepted to a council flat just 15 minutes from his parents' home and close to his other siblings in the area. Keith was a man who prided himself on his home 
It was spotless, and if you popped by his home, you would often find him cleaning. In 2003, when the harassment was happening, Keith's father passed away. Yet his routine continued throughout the pain. Cleaning, cycling, seeing his beloved family, and going to his mother Pauline's home every evening for dinner. As Keith, as ever independent he was, he was unable to cook. So, he arrived home after his dinner with his mother on the 23rd. All seemed fine. He lifted his new bike into the small hallway of the one-bedroom flat. The next day, his mother Pauline was making a favourite of Keith's, sausage and mash. When he wasn't there at his usual time, instant panic struck. She tried his mobile phone, yet did not get an answer. Other members of the Philpot family also tried to ring Keith's mobile number, yet the phone was switched off. His sister Christine was to later say, It just went to voicemail, and he was never without his phone. It was his lifeline, so we knew something was wrong. After he did not appear at his mother's home, some members entered the small concreted court where Keith lived. The street is filled with one-bedroom flats. Doors are close together, with upstairs and downstairs flats having front doors just metres apart. When Keith's family arrived, they looked through the frosted glass of the bathroom window, which was located by the front door. It is a small and high window, and not much could be seen. They then lifted the letterbox and peered inside. When looking through and expecting to see the hallway leading to the lounge, neat and tidy as always, they knew something was horribly wrong when instead of seeing such a sight, they saw one of the first doors of the hallway, the bathroom, hanging off its hinges. Within seconds, they were on the telephone with the police. The uniform officers arrived just before 9.30pm and they had to break down the door to gain access into the home. Inside, they found a scene that was to be described by officers and detectives as one of the worst crime scenes they've ever encountered. Keith Philpot was found gagged, beaten, bound by his wrists and ankles, and disemboweled. A murder investigation was set up, and senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Tony Hutchinson, was to take the lead and ordered forensics to search the home and surrounding areas, which included the estate and many green areas nearby. He was to say in a press conference about the body discovered that Thursday night. A team of forensic experts are expected to spend several days searching the property and carrying out tests at the building. I do not believe Keith was a victim of a random attack. It may well be that he knew his killer or killers. It was a sickening attack. Brutal. Vicious. There are many words that could be used to describe this attack. Another is cowardly. He was in his own home. He's tied up and becomes an immobile, defenceless man. Police are keen to establish all his movements from 6pm on Wednesday until 9.30pm on Thursday. 
The horrific discovery was one that shocked the small town and the wider area, and with support from a family liaison officer, Mr Philpott's family made an emotional appeal through the media for help in catching the killer who has so brutally taken Keith away from them. Stephen, his brother, who had lived within London, was to say, He was trusting, unassuming, and always put other people before himself. He would do anything for anybody. Nothing was any trouble for him. This has been a nightmare for all the family, especially for my mother. It is a nightmare that she hasn't woken up from yet. But as a family, we will support each other. Pauline was to say about her son. He was a lovely lad, peaceful and quiet. The events that had happened in that flat soon became apparent after the pathologist was to conduct the post-mortem. Keith had been subjected to a prolonged attack that would have lasted around three hours. After the man had been bound by his hands and feet, his mouth gagged, he was then repeatedly kicked and stamped on, leaving him unrecognisable, as due to these stamps to the face, head and body, he was, quote, a bloody pulp. His assault also included multiple punches and kicks. It was then when Mr Philpott's killer took a bread knife from the kitchen and whilst he was still alive, stabbed him in the stomach and began to saw and cut through him until his intestines were outside of his flesh. A witness was to come forward who was to be the last person to see Mr Philpott alive before his killer had. This was his neighbour who said that they had spoke about his new bike, but after that they saw or heard nothing more from Keith or from his home. It would not be long before investigators already had a lead in this case. Keith was not a man who had trouble with the police. He'd only made reports that I've previously stated. And from these reports, only one set of people had been cautioned. The Swindons. The Philpott family were in attendance at the home with police officers to assess if anything had been taken. After the witness had come forward saying they'd seen him with his new bike, the police found it strange that his bike was not anywhere in his small flat. It was not in the tiny bedroom, or the lounge, or the kitchen, and it wasn't in the bathroom. There was a small cupboard in the hallway, but it would have been too small for it to fit. So where was it? The family also noted that the Lifeline mobile phone was missing, as was a gold ring. This was going to be crucial when identifying the killer of Keith Philpott. The next day, there were reports that a pair of young men were trying to sell a mobile phone. That was later to be identified as Keith's. CCTV was to show two young men buying cans of lager and trying to sell a ring that belonged to the victim on the 24th of March. High Grange in Billingham is a very close-knit community. Everyone knows everyone. In fact, Gemma Swindon lived just four streets away from Keith's mother. The men seen on CCTV were easily identified as they had had many run-ins with officers 
across the towns patrolled by Cleveland police. However, after the 24th, they seemingly vanished. The first man to be arrested was to hand himself into police after he was escorted by his girlfriend to the police station. That was a 24-year-old man of no fixed abode from the nearby town of Middlesbrough. His name was Sean Swindon, the older brother of Gemma. He was to reveal what happened to Keith in his home on the night of the 23rd of March. Sean had become convinced that the innocent Keith was actually a paedophile who had abused his sister throughout her teen years, despite her refusal to stay away from him after the police warnings many months before. He had a friend that lived at 22 Airmont Road in the nearby town of Norton. This man had twice been arrested for assault on wrongly suspected paedophiles. This friend was a man who looked an awful lot like what I imagine Frankenstein's monster to, and his name was Michael Pert, just 22 at the time of the killing. That evening, Sean had approached Michael and suggested they get the 36-year-old Keith for what he had apparently done to Gemma. When their victim arrived home, they knocked on his door. When he answered, Keith had instantly recognised them and tried to run. He was punched in the face before the door was closed behind the three men and the security lock tightened. Keith scrambled to the first door he could, the bathroom. After getting to the safety of the bathroom, the terrified man who had limited cognitive function tried to lock the door and huddled inside, screaming for help. Outside the thin brown wooden door was Sean and Michael, who began to use brute force to bring the door off its hinge. Once they had broken the barrier between them and their victim, they ran inside the cramped room that had a bathtub and sink along one wall, a toilet on the wall with the window, and a radiator on the wall with the entrance. They then subdued him. Keith had tried to put up a struggle, but was soon overpowered by the two men. They then spent several hours beating him, until, whilst he was alive, Sean took the knife and cut so deep, bringing the blade back and forth a number of times to disembowel Keith. Michael was arrested, and he collaborated the story, which he'd also confessed to an independent friend. He said they stole the items that they wished to sell. Sean Swindon was seen wearing the gold ring by many witnesses. On March 31st, at Teesside Magistrates Court, the evil pair were remanded until trial. The trial of Keith Philpott's brutal killers, Michael Pert and Sean Swindon, was to be held at Teesside Crown Court in mid-October 2005. The pair were due to go on to be seen at the court for a number of weeks, but Michael Pert pleaded guilty to murder. With this, on the 10th, in front of Judge Peter Fox, Queen's Counsel, Sean Swindon also pleaded guilty. What was then heard in the court were the facts of the case and any mitigating factors from the defence that may be considered for sentencing the men. 
For the prosecution, Graham Reads was to tell the events that led up to the death of Keith, including referencing statements from neighbours such as Angela Brown, who said that Gemma was known to abuse Keith's hospitality, and the messages that were received by Keith on the 21st of March, which are the ones that said, you perv. He then stated about the injuries. It is the pathologist's opinion that the deceased had first been intimidated or physically overwhelmed, then gagged and then bound, then placed on the floor and assaulted by multiple punches, kicks, stamps to the head and face. Once reduced to unconsciousness or near death, he has then been stabbed in the abdomen in a peculiar manner, producing a large gaping abdominal wound. Bleeding may well have been the proximate cause of death. Trying to mitigate the actions of the primary executioner, as he was dubbed by the court, the defence counsel for Sean Swindon, Mr Aidan Marin, agreed that if it wasn't for the accusations made by Gemma, his sister, he would not have attacked the man, stating they were pivotal in his mind at the point of the murder. Continuing, They were accusations which were uppermost and at the vanguard of the defendant's mind, when he went there on that particular occasion. Her accounts did, in fact, fuel the mind of her brother. Gemma was never arrested in relation to Philpot's death. She had no knowledge of what her brother had planned to do. The police accepted that the accusations against Keith were false, as his limited ability to read and write meant that he would not be able to send sexually explicit messages to the woman. Christine Philpot said of her brother's murder, They would not have preyed on him if he was non-disabled. They knew he was an easy target. Judge Fox sentenced Swindon, the man considered the leader of the two, to serve at least 20 years in prison, and Pert, the minimum term of 15 years, in his part of the murder. Speaking later, Detective Superintendent Tony Hutchinson of Cleveland Police, who led the murder inquiry, said, This was something you would expect to see in medieval England, not in the 21st century. Outside the court, surrounded by family, Mr Philpott's brother Stephen said, There is never a day that goes by when a member of our family, if indeed all of us, do not think of Keith. And Pauline, his grieving mother, said, I can never forgive them. I can't forgive them. After the sentences were declared against Pert and Swindon, the Crown Prosecution asked for an appeal after they felt the sentences were unduly lenient. The Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, allowed this, and on the 16th of February 2006, the three judges declared that the recorder of Middlesbrough Judge Peter Fox was simply wrong that he did not rule the murder as sadistic, which would have been considered an aggravating factor in the sentencing. If it was not for the CPS highlighting that the sentencing for these two killers had been low, they may have never had their sentences uplifted. Michael Pert was given a minimum term of 22 years and Sean Swindon was given a minimum of 28 years after the Court of Appeal agreed that this case did need uplifting. 
after the consideration of Section 146 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003, which states that hostility towards a disabled person is to be seen as aggravating. There is a huge issue in regards to disability hate crime in the UK, which I highlighted when we covered the case of Stephen Simpson in the episode Birthday Party, who was also targeted because of his disability. Yet, it was not considered a hate crime, and the bastard that set him on fire was only sentenced to three years imprisonment. Why is this an issue? Section 21 of the Criminal Justice Act 2003, which is what the judiciary used to advise on sentencing tariffs, states that aggravating factors of motivated hate towards race, religion or sexuality should increase the tariff, yet dismisses that of disability. An inquiry was conducted by the Equality and Human Rights Commission called Hidden in Plain Sight, which highlighted a number of other cases that bore striking similarities within the background of this murder, which includes scapegoating, false sexual accusations, and lenient sentencing when looking at murders committed against disabled victims. These include Stephen Hoskin, Laura Milne, Andrew Gardner, Sean Miles, Albert Adams and Michael Gilbert. With that, it's the end of the fourth episode in Side Terrors, so it's just about time for me to introduce you guys to the wonderful Steve at True Crime Fix. It is a fantastic British podcast and I am proud to have his promo playing, so listen up now. So you must like True Crime Podcasts or you wouldn't be here. Are you fed up with the killer being the star of the show? How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Donna Manson? I bet you'll have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Ted Bundy. Hi everyone, this is Steve, the creator and host of the True Crime Fix podcast, which gives you the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. The show is now in its fourth season, and if you give it a chance, we might be your new favourite show. I release new episodes every other Friday via all podcast apps, so I'm not that hard to find. So please, come over and subscribe. To date, I've covered a variety of cases, so I can guarantee that there will be something for you. I really hope that you find the episodes informative. Please, as ever, support the show with the details that you can find in the show notes. So at the end of every episode, I like to see if we can balance out those scales somewhat with a small act of kindness. This week, my suggestion is something very close to my heart. Now, another brilliant podcast is Ignorance Was Bliss, hosted by the awe-inspiring Kate. Now, she was kind enough to highlight Podcasts Matter, and there is a short clip here of Kate explaining a little bit about what... This week, I hope you will consider doing. Hey, this is Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. In April 2019, my father died by suicide. There's no happy ending to this story. It's hard and it still hurts. But a few months before he died, he called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800 273 8255. I don't know what was said, but he hung up with enough hope to give me a few more months with him. I'm grateful. 
As a way of expressing that gratitude, some friends and I are encouraging donations to Lifeline by running a giveaway of handmade, often nerdy sorts of prizes, from hats to paintings to stuffed animals. Donate any amount and send a screenshot to podcastsmatter at gmail.com to be entered into the drawing. Winners will be chosen on Halloween 2020. More information and photos of prizes as they become available will be on podcastsmatter.blog.home. You matter. Suicide is an issue that is very close to home for me, and I know for many more. All I ask is you donate what you can, or even just spread the word. You do matter, and no matter how hard things may be, how you can't see the forest for the trees, you're not alone. As I've said before, my virtual door is always open. All the information for Podcast Matter will be in the show notes, and I will be posting extra information about the project throughout the week on social media. With that, go be good people, go be kind, go be safe, and most importantly, go be happy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.